who you are defines how you build. This is Thought Leaders Revisited, a special summer 2020 edition of our Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders series. During this summer of uncertainty, we're inviting some of the most influential past ETL speakers to join us for a series of new conversations about innovation, leadership, and especially finding opportunities in the midst of a crisis. On this episode, we're joined by Joseph DeSimone. Joe co-founded Carbon in 2013. Carbon is doing groundbreaking work on 3D printing for a wide range of applications, including urgent needs during the COVID crisis. We're welcoming back Joe, who was here just almost four years ago in 2016. Uh, he co-founded Carbon three years before that. Previously, he was a professor at the University of North Carolina. But while you were d- there, you were also you know, doing these scientific breakthroughs, like I mentioned, and co-founding several companies, um, all before launching uh, uh, Carbon. So can you share a little bit more about that path and how you balance those two? Well, sure. Uh, it's uh, it's great to connect with a Dukey here uh, as a Tar Heel. But uh, in fact, my first PhD student, uh, Valerie Ashby, is now dean of Trinity College there at Duke University. So I'm I'm much more tolerant of my Duke colleagues there. But uh, yeah, Carolina hired me when I was 25 to help start a polymer program, and and you know I brought a utilitarian-like perspective from Virginia Tech, and uh, you know a liberal arts education from our Sinus College, and tried to meld all that together and, and launch my program. And, uh, you know, it was a center-based research. I had great students. Uh, you know, we really focused on uh, fundamentals that would have an impact in the, the real world. I call it translational research. And, but, you know, I, I taught entrepreneurship. You know, we had an uh, entrepreneurship minor in the College of Arts and Sciences at Carolina. And, um, but, and I started several companies, but I was always, I was never on the field with any of the companies. And, and as you know, you learn so much more by doing. And when Jim Getz and the team at Sequoia asked me to, I had already hired a CEO for Carbon. Uh, if they asked me to lead it, um, you know, I thought, boy, now that would be a, a real opportunity to learn from the inside and be on the field. And it's been an incredible run, six years as CEO. That's a 24 seven job. And uh, for six years, it's very intense. But you know, there's nothing like that in academia, you know, when I walk in the parking lot at the company, uh, you know, all I see are car payments and mortgage payments and people that left great companies to come work for our company. And there's an immense amount of responsibility that you have as a founder, CEO, that is, uh, there's really nothing quite equivalent to that in the academy. Yeah, well, Carter's been quite a ride. So let's, let's talk a little bit about what's gone on from since uh, four years ago that Let's, let's do it in this context. And this has been our format this summer, as you heard about, and we're, we're going to keep right on rolling this. Take some of the clips from that period and then fast forward to now and, and talk about what's happened. And, and then prepare, we'll make sure for sure to talk about the future. So let's take this first one. And it uh, has to do with a model that we, uh, it, it, well, frankly, it's one of the mainstays of entrepreneurship education. That's crossing the chasm. So let's play clip number one. Uh, that you showed back four years ago. And the chasm is in this technology adoption curve where in the beginning of all new technology introductions, the techies drive adoption. Techies love products, in fact, they love products that are not complete. They like to cobble together a partial solution. 
uh, and that's part of what they love to do. But to really get to the early majority or the large volume of revenue, you need an economically viable solution. People don't care about technology on the other side of the chasm. They want a solution that's economically viable. You looked, you looked exactly the same as you did four years ago. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't wear that. I took that sport coat off. But, uh. <laughs> but uh, all right, so this is a very important concept, as I mentioned, in entrepreneurship education. So where is 3D uh, now yeah. in the adoption curve? So, you know, up to this point, or, printing, I mean. yeah, so up to the point when Carbon launched, 3D printing has been mostly a prototyping uh, industry, right? And that includes hardware, software, materials, even the parts. And that's about an $8 billion marketplace. I uh, also had some dental in there. Dental has been part of this sector. And so that's probably the more most commercial of the traditional 3D printing. You know, when we figured out how to take 3D printing and go faster, and make real parts, that was the beginning to go into the $300 billion manufacturing world of injection molding. And so I think you know, what's crossing, crossing the chasm for us is what are the use cases, what are the killer apps, if you will, that drove high volume manufacturing? And you know, Adidas, I don't know if I mentioned Adidas back then, but you know, Adidas was our, is our partner. And you know, that's a, we always thought, boy, if we could scale up a, a consumer running shoe, you know, the world would be our oyster because we would have figured out a lot of stuff, you know, advanced materials, global scale manufacturing, and we figured that out. And uh, now you can go to adidas.com and buy the, you know, the, the alpha edges and the 4D and lots of great running shoes and it, over a million pair already uh, with that. Uh, we also have liners for Riddell. Uh, football helmets, personalized helmets, uh, over a thousand NFL D1 athletes and many other sports coming along. And, and so those high volume consumer, including you know, specialized bike seats, they've all happened. We've crossed the chasm. And now it's scaling to replace foam more broadly. We also have the very first parts on production vehicles out of Detroit, new cars, uh, Ford Mustangs, F-150 trucks, the very first parts on 3D printed polymeric parts on those cars. Uh, and trucks. And so that sets the stage. It took us two years to get through the quality for quality standards to make that happen. But now that opens up many billions of opportunity uh, in electrical connectors and other sort of applications in the automotive space. Uh, and then, you know, in the, in the healthcare space for us, uh, you know, not only dental and dental models, but, you know, we have now the first FDA approved 3D printed dentures. And, you know, you could argue that we should do nothing else but dentures right now. It's a $14 billion marketplace. Uh, we have over 5,000 people now wearing the first 3D printed dentures. And so there are great examples of crossing the chasm, mm -hmm. uh, but they are the killer apps. And we need thousands of those. We are expecting to do thousands of those applications because that's what manufacturing is all about. And that's what we're focused on. So was shoes the... The lead, you know, he, Jeff Moore, who developed that model, as you know, he talked about bowling alley where you knock over the first pin and it, yeah. So, what was the first pin? Was it the so shoes? It's the shoes, and and the bowling alley for us, it, there's several bowling alleys. Yeah, uh, so we try to be disciplined, but uh, foam replacement, using elastomer lattices to replace foam from Adidas running shoes, uh, specialized bike seats, Riddell football helmets. All those, kind, uh, all those kinds of advanced applications. 
another bowling alley for us would have been industrials. Yeah. Uh, electrical connectors, Vitamix, uh, you know, Lamborghini parts, you know, NASA parts. We have parts on the circulating the space station on the first autonomous untethered vehicles circulating the space station, Beck and Dickinson. So there are bowling alleys, but for us, it's really a platform uh, to make parts. Resins are, are the enabler of the TAM, right? Every resin opens up new TAM, new capabilities, new properties. Uh, and that's how we think about it. My niece went berserk when she heard I was talking to you. She's a teenager back in Minnesota and, and a big Adidas fan. So that's all it took. So. Well, you know, I used to, it's neat to be a chemistry professor and have, be the cool kid on the block with sneakers. So it's, uh, it's unusual <laughs> for me. All right. Well, also back then you talked about, uh, four years ago, talked about future proofing, which I really love that term. I, 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 I not heard that before and future-proofing your customers through an innovative business model, which I heard those about that. In other words, innovate not only in technology, which clearly was a no-brainer for you, but also the great companies also innovate in business models. So let's play that clip number two, yep. future-proofing customers. And again, as I mentioned to you, that we're coming out with this printer as a subscription model, right? It's a rental. Uh, what this really does is it aligns us with our customers printing. Right? This is not a transactional sale, it's a partnership. And most importantly, this future proofs our customers. Right? I know the product roadmap. I know when this product's gonna be obsolete. Our customers don't have to worry about that. Right? They're not locked in, they're future proofed. And especially for a company like us that's just coming out with a brand new technology, you know, I don't have the heart to have people buy stuff that I know is gonna be obsolete. And so the subscription model, for lots of reasons, becomes an important way to move a new product into the marketplace. So how's this business model working? It's been the, uh, the key to the whole business. Really? Uh, you know, in fact, I looked at the slide and I forgot to appreciate. So that was our first printer, the M1. And we only built about 100 of those. Uh, now the commercial product at that scale is called the M2. And just as a great example, it's got twice the build area. Uh, and so it went up, you know, went up two X and the, and the price went up 25% to 50, you know, to $50,000 a year instead of 40. And so, you know, that's an example of, you know, people, you got twice the build area, you can have twice the throughput and you didn't have to be, you know, throw away the other printer, right? People can upgrade. And we actually have a customer that, that took back all the 100s and are using them in other markets or they're continuing to be used beyond their three years. And so that's a great example, but the key is, it's 100% smart hardware uh, that takes over the air software upgrades. And the process is intrinsically digital. It's, we think of it as a software control chemical reaction to grow parts. And so the, what's key is we've been able to do software upgrades every six to eight weeks and the process is getting better and better. So in many ways, it's like a network effect, mm -hmm. right? The more people use it, the better the product's getting and the ability of rolling out new resins. And so now in sort of hindsight, I don't know how you introduce a new physical product without doing a subscription model with it, which intrinsically future-proofs customers. Mm -hmm. uh, and it gives us really close relationships with our customers. So we're, they're partnerships and we get to know who we're doing business with and 35% and of our sales or so goes to existing customers. And so it's really a land and expand marketplace 
And it's an install base that's growing and growing and the subscription model really helps us with that. Wow, that is, that. well, again, another big important takeaway that we stress in all our entrepreneurship courses is, and it's, you know, for, especially for our STEM students, is it enlightens them that innovation is not just, um, you know, relegated to being a, a technology breakthrough. It can also be a business model breakthrough. Totally right, Tom. You know, I think, the, you know, the board, the company, everybody believes that the breakthrough in the business model is as significant as the technology and it's built relationships. It's kind of what Alan Mulally did when he was at Boeing and, and uh, had power by the hour for the GE uh, uh, jet engines. And so it's really been a key part of who we are. All right. I want to talk to you about COVID because I, I, I realize you're over at the School of Medicine here at Stanford right now. I am not on campus. There's no, I think you might be one of the very few people on campus, but I want to talk about COVID and what you've been doing in that. But before we do that, let's talk about sustainability. I know that's been a, a core value for the company since the get-go. So how do you... Uh, how do you emphasize that in both the technology and the business model? Yeah, I, they actually have to be done hand in hand. Um, you know, we now believe, we know that 3D printing is going to be big. And, uh, you know, so many businesses don't think ahead about the implications of their technology. You know, uh, when you look about, uh, uh, you know, think about Uber and it was going to be a company that uh, was going to, eliminate congestion in cities and now it's, you know, it's causing a lot of congestion or, you know, Juul was going to help people stop smoking and it started vaping and, you know, encryption was going to protect our privacy and it's now the domain of criminals. I mean, just, you have to think at the broad implications and for carbon, 3D printing is going to be big. We have to think ahead of schedule, ahead of time about environmental stewardship, right? So we've been able to now take that as an initiative out of the gates and think about our largest volume resins, Adidas running shoes, <clears throat> dental models, and what can we do to make those recyclable? You know, you think about Invisalign-like products, mm -hmm. right? We make a model of, uh, of, of teeth and you thermoform a sheet of plastic on it to make an aligner, and the 3D printed model is a single-use plastic. Mm -hmm. It's used for 30 minutes, and it's gonna be landfilled for hundreds of years. Uh, because it's a thermoset. Well, our technical team has designed a resin that can turn that back to liquid, a reversible thermoset. And, uh, and we think we can do that for, you know, elastomer lattices too. And so if you can do that, uh, and you have a business model that collects those and doesn't re rely on the municipal waste stream, <clears throat> right? But you have a business model that you bring those models back, you chemically digest it, turn it back to liquid and reuse it. So that's where we're going. That's a higher calling. Uh, and when every part has got a barcode on there, you can actually quantify maybe for the first time somebody's environmental footprint or recycling, uh, data-driven. But you also get into uh, you know, lightweight parts, bio-based bio feedstocks, local for local production, and ultimately avoiding inventory. You know, inventory ties up a lot of capital. A lot of parts are sitting in air-conditioned buildings just waiting to be used. So you think about on-demand inventory, and there's a lot of things on the environmental side uh, that are really enabled by having a digital transform, a digital manufacturing platform. Wow, a lot it, to unpack there. It, it, yeah, well, it it sounds like science fiction, but it's not. 
it's, uh, you know, I still get goosebumps. So, you know, as a polymer person, I remember in grad school, you know, just making a, make a test specimen that looked like a dog bone was hard. And now we just print, you know, thousands of them. It's, it's, the team's been amazing. It's really been pretty remarkable. Well, sustainability and, and climate is, is, is a big deal. And, and it's a big issue for the planet. It was in 2016. It is in 2020. And we've been faced with some other big deals that have come along this year. So let's talk about COVID. Um, the reason you're on campus this afternoon, I'm assuming, is uh, from, from what you said this morning, you were, you were meeting with the, uh, the dean of our School of Medicine and the CEO of uh, Stanford Hospital. So a, a few weeks ago, and it was back in May, we had Andy Karsner of X uh, as an ETL speaker. Yeah. And he about, uh, and I'm, for everybody who's watching, if you go back to the ETL in May with Andy Karsner, it's a fantastic ETL about speaking of, of climate and sustainability. That's his expertise. But about 20 minutes in, around the 20 minute mark, he, go, he goes off on you in a big way. And he's, and he's talking about this COVID thing that you did. So can you, before we play the clip, can you tell us a little bit of what's going on? Well, you know, I mean, the context, um, you know, I was moving into my governance role uh, at the company. Ellen and I had just traded places and, and, uh, and uh, then COVID hit. And all of a sudden, we're getting inundated with knowledge about supply chain disruption. And we've been talking about from the very beginning what digital manufacturing can do. And we were mostly thinking about earthquakes and storms, things that could disrupt the supply chain. Then you get this pandemic. And all of a sudden, very simple things like face shields are in massive short supply. And the hospitals, you know, they only stack a couple of weeks of supplies on these things. And now all of a sudden they're just inundated. Uh, and, then, and then COVID testing swabs. Mm-hmm. You know, the biggest factory for making these testing swabs is in, was in Lombardy, Italy. And they got hammered with the coronavirus. And so here is the disruption that is actually the irony. It's disrupting the things that allow us to test for the disruption. And, uh, and so there was this massive shortage. The Air Force flew in the last million swabs and everybody was panicked. And, and I didn't know what a nasopharyngeal swab was when I started. And, and, but uh, we looked into it and, and we could walk you through. Yeah, let's, let's play the clip and talk some more about it. At Carbon, our purpose is to improve lives with science, technology, and creativity. When COVID-19 hit and we saw a world confronted by medical supply shortages, we knew we needed to do something. We brought together our employees, partners, and customers to address two needs. First, protect healthcare workers. Second, increase testing capacity for COVID-19. Digital light synthesis, our 3D printing technology, is enabling the protection of those on the front lines by making up to 50,000 face shields a week. And more accessible testing thanks to Resolution Medical lattice swabs crafted with carbon technology. Together, we're making what the world needs now. So I just want us all to take a minute here or a second and just recall the, the compressed time yeah, we're talking about. So we're, we're in June. We're still in the pandemic. But this was about four months ago. 
you're you're having an incredible run with what huge deals with Adidas and the other uh, major companies you talked about. You could have just sat back and you know rode rode, rode that momentum, but then you got inspired. So how about this? What were some of the you know, tell us the story about some of the, I hate to put it in the negative, but what were some of the roadblocks you went through to, um, to make it happen in such a, a, you know, fast time? Well, as you know, everything was happening so fast. And, um, and then, you know, the other thing to realize is that a good chunk of Carbon's business is in dental and dental was shutting down, right? So there's this capacity sitting there. And a lot of our partners are sitting there. So we had, a, uh, you know, Ellen Coleman uh, called a, 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 a town hall meeting and Philip and I, uh, my son, we had, a, we hosted over 300 of our uh, partners and team members. And we said, look, we, we have a lot of resin and we have a tool that doesn't need molds to make things, right? It's using light. And, and remember how people make things physically, typically by injection molding is you have to invest a lot of time and energy to have a mold. Uh, and then you heat a plastic up, you fill the molds let, uh, with the part, let it cool down, open up the mold and take the part out. We do things without molds. It's moldless. We use light to craft things. And so what we did is we pivoted our capability, our machines, our team, and we said, look, we'll push face shields designs and we'll design two different ones to meet the properties of two different high volume resins that were sitting there available, our dental model resin and our Adidas running shoe resin. And so working with Adidas um, and, uh, and working with all our dental customers, we pushed de designs out into the field and right, we're approaching a thousand printers globally and we're in 17 different countries and and we gave people that had capacity and interest the capability of keeping, not, not, and not only keeping their employees going and keeping their businesses going, but to help out in their local communities, right? So I think we did over 350,000 face shields, 50,000 shields a week, and still counting. And people are renewing. And now they're going into grocery stores and dentist offices and all sorts of things. Um, so that's pretty cool. The testing swab, we literally... Uh, learned about what the conventional swab looked like, and we printed new varieties the next day. One day. You're kidding. Uh, no, it was amazing. Our team, Hardik and our team and Marie and Steve Pollock, we, we figured out you know, some early designs, went through a couple dozen different designs, and then we worked with a medical device partner, Resolution Medical, who is an FDA-registered medical company, because we're not, uh, and uh, stood up a supply chain that leveraged the dental labs. Remember, there's, there's 7,000 dental labs that support over 100,000 dentists. And uh, those labs are our customers that have our printers. They're the ones that make the physical things that dentists use. Mm -hmm. And we pivoted one of our dental resins that was used uh, for making night guards. It was already FDA approved for night guards. It's approved for mucosal contact. It's a soft plastic. Uh, and we created a very soft lattice structure uh, and, uh, and we brought a medical device to life and Resolution Medical launched a device in 20 days, a class one exempt device. 
And then 50 days later, and that's why I'm over here at Stanford, 50 days later, we completed over a 400 patient clinical evaluation of two different lattice designs and compared them to a standard swab uh, for performance, performance on comfort, collection efficiency, the PCR compatibility. It was a non-inferiority trial. It's more than equivalent. It's, it's, and there actually is a hint uh, that we have a lower false negative rate for low viral loads. And so we need to go study and quantify that. But it's pretty remarkable that in 20 days, you could bring a medical device product to life and, compete, and complete a 400 patient trial 50 days later. Well, you are helping uh, the heroes and you're helping us, uh, just you know, humans that uh, as well, I think you are up, way up, you're up the supply chain of heroes as well, you and your company. And I, um, hats off to you. I, I, I want to talk more about that, but maybe we'll do that during Q&A. I, I just don't want to miss this opportunity to play a couple more clips having to do with another phrase that I remember well from four years ago, the drivers of innovation. Great. And you were talking about this notion of convergence. So can we play a couple of clips? First clip is... Um, about connecting with the humanities, which is another big theme of ours nowadays at Stanford and the Entrepreneurship Center. So let's play clip number four. You know, historically, the, the word convergence and its meaning has often implied the convergence of the physical sciences, engineering, and medicine. In fact, that's the way MIT has classically referred to convergence. But I think, uh, you know, what it really means is bringing together disciplines uh, in maybe not so obvious ways and thinking about what emerges from that. But I think more broadly, and what Apple has done, is I think you have to think about extending this to the social sciences, the humanities, and perhaps even the performing arts. And thinking about tech and the humanities and the liberal arts as an important aspect. And uh, as part of that, I think a lot of people believe that convergence itself is actually a blueprint for innovation. Uh, if one can get convergence right, it can be a real driver for uh, new ideas. Can you give us some interesting examples of uh, convergence? Well, you know, I, I think in the beginning, especially back then, I was, I was, you know, building upon what we were talking about with hardware, software, and chemistry all coming together. You know, those are disciplines that are spread out, and, and there's a lot of good stuff in between those disciplines. So there's, there's that level that is very tangible, and it's, I think it's easy for people to understand. A software control, chemical reaction to grow parts, um, you know, that, that is very tangible and that's a foundation. But then you think about, you know, that in context of a, of, of business, business approach, you know, the idea of rolling in a subscription model, which has never been done in the physical world. Certainly this is the very first piece of manufacturing hardware ever to go out with a subscription model. Right. And then a hundred percent hardware and, and what that means from a, a context of, <clears throat> inventory replacement and, and the like. And so, you know, now you roll it up and you think about, again, back to the liberal arts, you think about everything in context, right? You think about what it takes to make an impact. What are the economics? What are the, the history of all that? And, you know, understanding all the business aspects and supply chain dynamics. And to me, it's, it's all the convergence coming together uh, that enable that you have to think about the business model, societal implications, helping our customers, where to make impact, to think about <clears throat> recycling now as opposed to waiting after the fact, 
and uh, and realize you've caused a problem, like I alluded to with uh, with Jewel and other companies, and you know, and, and it's it's really that contextualization of what it is you're doing uh, that really brings all that together. And you know, we're now working on you know meeting folks here in pediatrics. We're working with folks, neonatal babies that have cleft palates and and uh, they can't. They're too young to have surgery and. And uh, working with amazing doctors here to to seal the palate and and maybe work with palate expanders as the babies grow and and you know it's having you know the wherewithal the understanding of context and impact and and being open it's a big part of it. Well, it was interesting yesterday. I had a, the uh, opportunity to attend a an, a an urgent or important academic council meeting, you know, in other words, it's gathering all the, the prof- number of professors at Stanford, and, and it was a, a mix of humanities professors and, and engineering and physical sciences professors, and I was, it was just, uh, there was an issue on the table, that's not so as important as it, it was, I heard over and over how the engineering professors loved being part of a liberal arts university, and, um, and I know that that's the way uh, professors feel it for, at UNC and Duke. That's why it's very comfortable for me to be a visitor because that's the, especially since I'm an entrepreneurship professor, my counterparts at UNC and Duke feel the same way that it, engineers ought to learn about the humanities. And of course, humanity, humanities majors ought to learn, you know, enough to, uh, uh, about technology to, to uh, be Renaissance people. Everybody can learn to be a Renaissance person. It doesn't yeah. have to, it's not something you're necessarily born with. All right, let's play another clip that, because this is also, you know, a very, very important topic this year. And this is the advantage of diversity. Let's play clip number five. You know, you know, recognizing early on uh, that we learn the most from those that we have the least in common with, right? And you think about that. If you're part, if you're getting part of a design team and you're fortunate to be part of a design team, you recognize that these different experiences drive the innovation process. I can tell you more times than not, uh, different design teams I've been associated with, which if somebody grew up with not much money, they think about problem solving fundamentally different than somebody that grew up with a lot of money. Not that one is better than the other, they're just different. And if your goal is to broaden the perspectives around the table, then you have to think about this diversity, this element of diversity to drive innovation. That was four years ago. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, how about four weeks ago? Uh, so wh- how do you think about diversity now and what's going on in America in particular? And how's, what does that have to do with carbon? You know, it's um, uh, not, not a lot's changed, frankly. You know, and um, when you look back, I, I remember in the late 1990s, uh, my group, a uh, very diverse group at Carolina, you know, graduated over 80 PhD students and half were uh, women and others underrepresented in sciences, and and I had a very um, I had a number large number of uh, uh, African Americans in my group, and and I was given a talk in South Carolina in the 1990s, and and the um, NAACP had a boycott on the state of South Carolina because of the Confederate flag, Confederate flag, and I was a keynote lecturer, and we decided we weren't going to go as a group. Um, and what happened was they ended up moving the meeting to another state. Um, and, you know, now we hear about NASCAR finally addressing the Confederate flag. You know, I mean, it's just a lot has happened, but a lot hasn't changed. And, you know, our faculties don't represent 
the diversity of our student population. And there's so many things that we need to keep working on. And, and again, back to the importance of this, this is where the richness of innovation is, right? The diversity of perspectives, um, the thinking and cultural values, all that comes together. And if we don't get this right, we're holding back innovation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it takes a relentless, un- unfortunately, it's, it takes relentless leadership to keep making this front and center. Because I'll tell you, I see it so many times that if you don't keep it front and center, it's easy not to do. And, um, and it's got to be relentless. And people fall back to not thinking about it. And, and um, you know, it's, it's uncomfortable being with people that are different than you. And, uh, and that uncomfort has got to be harnessed, right? That's where all the richness is, right? It's, and uh, early in my academic career, I got invited to an innovation group. And not only was it all white guys around the table, but they all graduated from the same research group. And they all knew the same stuff. And they were at a structural disadvantage for driving innovation, right? Your community is, you've got to think about your community, your groups, uh, at the onset, or you're not going to be as innovative as you possibly could be. And, and, and that's something you've got to be relentless. It's great. Ellen Coleman, this has been a big passion of hers too. And one of the great reasons why she's part of the, the team at Carbon and she's been a strong advocate and it's a really important thing for us. Well, take a moment to talk a little bit about Ellen, please. I, I wanted to do that earlier as well. I think this is important because she has a, a, a great reputation in terms of uh, D, DEI. Yeah, no, Ellen is uh, amazing. You know, so we got Alan Mullally on our board at Carbon. You know, he was the iconic CEO of Ford Motor Company, and and uh, we we needed chemical acumen uh, on our board. And and I asked if anybody knew Ellen. She just stepped down as CEO at Dupont, and and I you know I didn't think I could get to her, but Alan could get to her, and and um, may have invited her to play golf somewhere or something, but she came and, and she checked us out. And I knew their technical team at DuPont. They knew me. I think she did a little due diligence there. And, and she joined our board about four years ago and uh, brought a lot of perspective. And so she's been my partner in crime as I've been leading the company as CEO uh, for four years. She then became our lead director. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, she is uh, – you know, she's having a great life, I thought, being a board member. She's a board of Goldman Sachs and Amgen, United Technologies, Dell, and Carbon, and and uh, and she's fairly young and, and wanted to get back at it and to be CEO somewhere. Uh, and I had been CEO for six years, and, you know, my heart and soul is in academia and, and uh, been doing that for 24-7, and we ended up switching switching roles. And so she's, uh, she's CEO. She switched in November. Her timing is not – great, uh, right before COVID. And, uh, you know, when she joined DuPont, it was right before the financial crisis. So uh, other than that, uh, uh, it's been really great. And uh, what great leadership as we scale our business, you know, she really understands global dynamics and how to build businesses and scale them overseas. And, you know, we're in 17 countries now, and she just brings, you know, that kind of scalability, the processes and it's carbon continues its trajectory. Having that kind of leadership has been awesome. Thanks, Joe, for that whirlwind. We can come back to some of the uh, important topics that we were covering just then. DEI, DEI uh, for example, uh, and some of the future-proofing, uh, convergence, it, anything's game. But I want to give our students uh, and others a chance to, to uh, participate. Now, I see a question here. It's, uh, 
a little bit long, but let me just, let me do the punchline and back up. How does Carbon select its clients and does the company take into account the long-term impacts of the client's company? This has to do with, uh, you know, itself may allow waste reduction and capital optimization for its uh, clients. The client's activities may still be significantly contributing to climate change and speedy 3D printing may just accelerate their activities. So how do you balance that so, sort of competing values, I guess? Well, you know, a subscription model uh, is a partnership and it allows you to assess your, your, your customers and, and also allows you to understand your values and if your value aligned. You know, we, with a subscription model, because we technically own the hardware, we have terms and conditions for its use. Uh-huh. So along those lines, we actually say not for weapons, right? Because we have advanced materials and we don't want to usher in a new era of security issues. And so we get to say those things and, and that, you know, that allows us to work with the kinds of customers we want. And uh, this is the environmental stewardship uh, opportunities allow us to hear the feedback from customers and understand the technological challenges to enable their aspirations, right? So designing new resins and new business models to help drive their aspirations. So that's how we think about that. All right, here's another one, uh, and this is related, uh, so maybe building on that. When, when would you suggest a, a subscription model? Many people complain about software subscription models because costs add up. Well, you know, I, I think the compelling reason for us is this future-proofing. I actually think a subscription model is more compelling in the physical world than it is in the software. Let's go say more compelling. It's as compelling as you can get because the last thing you want is to have legacy hardware and a transactional sale where your provider is not aligned with your business goals. You know, we get telemetry from the printers. You know, they have 80% use time. Um, uh, many are working you know, over 100 hours per week. You know, we could watch the dip on the coronavirus. We watch the comeback. Uh, all those things allow us to work closely with our customers. And I think if you've got a hardware business, you've got to think about this, unless it's a hardware business that's one and done. When you launch a platform and we're staring at 30 years of innovation, I cannot imagine a more compelling reason to, ha- to uh, not have a subscription model. It really enables one to, to work closely with their customers and really drive innovation. Imagine if you were inhibited to innovate because customers would get mad at you because they just bought your hardware, mm-hmm. right? This now like gets rid of that hesitation and you're just driving innovation the whole time. Uh, we got another question here, and I'm really glad to see this one because I wanted to come back to this topic, and this is uh, around DEI. It says, how do you track and measure your efforts on diversity and inclusion? Uh, how do you make this a relentless pursuit? Where are the pitfalls? How do you go beyond just the optics? This is something that's going on in, in the, the leadership of pretty much every enterprise you can think of whether it's a startup, whether it's a rocket ship like yours, or whether it's an established, you know, company. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, you know, something that I think I learned early on is that, you know, it's, you've got to be, you've got to be clear about your values. You know, early in my academic career, you know, and this, you know, this boycott uh, is one example. If you're clear about your values on your website and your promotional materials, what happens is you become a destination for the for excellence wherever it's at. 
people want to align yourself themselves with who you are because they're purpose driven many times. And if you're also clear about your values, your values, it's almost self-fulfilling because there are some people that realize, yeah, maybe they shouldn't be part of your organization. Right. So it, it can be really self-fulfilling about that. And, and so being clear about what's important to you, becoming a destination for excellence uh, is a key part of that. And then it's actually, you know, measuring and quantifying that. You look at, you know, carbon as we get ready for the next phase of carbon. We've been very intentional about our hiring and, you know, our general counsel, Meg Nibby, our, our CFO, uh, Elisa DeMartel, our CHRO, Barb Cadigan, our CMO, Dara Traceder, now our CEO. I mean, this is a manufacturing company that's led mostly by, by women and, um, and, uh, and a great team. But, you know, it, it's not at a board level. We've got two women on our board. And I really like the, the, the new laws in California about the number of women on boards because it gives us, it, it allows us to go back to the investors and say, look, guys, and I meant guys, and it wasn't the Philadelphia guys, it was the literal guys, you know, it was like, look, we need to, we need to be compliant. And there's too many people occupying precious seats. And so the investors who are often not very diverse, have got to give us latitude at companies to be able to allow our company's boards to be reflective of our values. And so it takes the leadership of the investors to realize that we got to create our, we got to create seats. Uh, and, and, and even if it, those regulations help drive it, I'm really grateful for that because it gives us a strong argument to have the boards reflective of our, of our company's values. Uh, there's a question here about uh, the COVID work, and I'd like to share that with you. After COVID has waned, and we don't know when that will be, could be this year, could be next year, could be a while. Could be a while. Yeah, I think so. Uh, do you see carbon continuing to make medical devices? That's now, a great we're in the market already, but is this going to is this a big bowling alley for you? Yeah, you know, I think it's TBD. Uh, there's over a hundred. You know, the nasopharyngeal swab was invented in like 1922, right after the Spanish flu, and. Um, and there's over a hundred different swabs out there. And, um, and you know, it's gonna be performance driven. You know, it's a mid-turbinate swab for the nares and an oral swab. And, you know, we were just on a great call with the Jan Zuckerberg uh, Center here with Steve Quake and his team. And, and there's a need to integrate uh, designs uh, for high throughput analysis instead of humans uh, breaking off the, the current uh, stem of, this, of the swab. And, so to me, I think there's actually going to be multiple products in this space uh, that are going to be new products that, you know, no one's ever redesigned a swab in 100 years, right? And so there was no reason to. And so now all of a sudden you realize that there's capabilities to improve performance, improve function, improve comfort, opening up new high throughput uh, opportunities for sequencing and, and or, or testing. So I, I, think it's, I think it's here to stay. And what's going to be interesting too, there's some really important dialogues out there now about supply chain disruption for our nation. And I think I would rank order things like, you know, pharmaceuticals and biologics and making sure that we're able to have these available in the country. Uh, you see a lot of work on integrated chip, integrated circuits and chips, onshoring of that capability. And then physical goods, what we do in, you know, in the injection molding world and having 
you know, reshoring manufacturing and having the flexibility of pushing files in different directions uh, in different locations in order to have agility in the supply chain. Those things are here to stay. And the COVID was our moment to shine of what digital transformation, digital manufacturing uh, enables. Joe, we've got more questions here, but I'm, I'm watching the time and I'm, I'm realizing that this is a special moment and you're a special person. I mean, just what you've accomplished uh, in your contributions to the planet and its well-being so far in your life. But put yourself back in being um, an undergrad and that's our sweet spot with this uh, speaker series. It was in 2016, it was 10 years before that and it still is. This is a, an amazing time to be a college student. Wow. If you, th- you know, stop for a moment, you know, and think about all, and uh, same goes with me. So um, what do you say to, to the, this, this uh, current generation of college students and, and how they might be feeling this summer with all these things uh, firing at one time? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. Um, but, you know, these are going to be badges of honor this time, right? I mean, it was in 9-11, you know, it was in uh, uh, the financial crisis, you know, um, this is going to be a time that it's, it's going to be remembered. It's going to be, the stories are going to be told. And what's, I think, really magical about this time, and I, you know, that, that's the word I'm going to use, magical, is there's so many things happening now, right? It's not just the coronavirus. You know, it's the economic impact from the coronavirus, and it's the racial disparities all coming together. And this apparent chaos is going to give, you know, it, this is the moment to fix a lot of stuff that needs fixing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that has been taking too long in my lifetime. It's taken too long uh, on a lot of racial diversity, uh, inclusive issues. And all of a sudden now, it's time. And you can do it through the, you know, the cover of chaos. I heard someone explain it the other way, the other day that way. And it may have been at a Coach K leadership thing that I was on. Uh, I hate to, hate to admit that, but it may have been on that. But, uh, but nonetheless, it's, it's, this is the moment. And I think everyone is going to be able to reflect back on this moment, what they did to help make a difference. Because this, there's, this is a tipping point on so many really important things. And to me, this is an inspirational time especially we make at this moment the fixed stuff that's taken decades and hasn't been fixed. And that's, they're going to be able to tell these stories. This is going to be their badge of honor. This is going to be their moment. And when they deal with other issues in the future, they're going to be, ah, we're going to be okay because we lived through this time and we came out better for it. And that's, that's what I would tell the undergrads. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at eCorner.stanford.edu.